Good afternoon. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO. The title has changed since last year. CEO of the Eating Prep Free Library, and I welcome you today for the 2009 Macon Day celebration. And I'd like to give a special recognition to members of the Macon Society who we consider part of the Pratt family. And we have appreciated your support through these years. And it's made such a difference in keeping Mr. Mankin's um, legacy alive. I'd also like to welcome our special guests and speakers. And if it's your first time at the Central Library for Mankin Day, we hope that you have a great experience and that you will get a chance to uh, look around as well. This is a day when we honor and commemorate someone we call an old friend who was actually a product of the Pratt Library. And many of you may know that when he was a child, Mankin visited his neighborhood Pratt branch at Hollins and Calhoun Streets. And when he grew up and became a successful writer and journalist, he used the very library that we're in today, the Central Library. And I thought I'd share with you a little of that um, relationship. There's a speech called The Warm, Long, Warm Friendship between H.L. Mencken and the Annie Pratt Free Library, and it was written by Mr. Edward Castagna, who was director, was director of the Annie Pratt Free Library, and he gave this address to the Columbia Library Association in April of 1963, and he started out by saying, although Love and H.L. Mencken are not usually associated, I think I can make a good case that a deeply affectionate relationship existed between the, quote, bad boy of Baltimore and the Enoch Pratt Free Library for well over half a century. And he goes on to say when the library was having budget problems, and this part really resonated with me, and during the Depression it had them even worse than we do today, H.L. Mencken could be counted upon to come through with the ferocious defense of the institution against those in power who he thought did not realize the value of books. Mencken not only gave encouragement, comfort, and ideas to the library, he gave them himself. He spoke a number of times at staff meetings and in answer to an invitation from Richard Hart, the head of the literature department, to speak at a writer's forum, he replied, very good. I'll present myself at room A in a little, a little before 8.30 on May 20th. I hope we'll have a good gang of spiritualists, communists, and other idealists. And Mr. Castagna ended with saying, when I speak to members of the staff about their memories of Minkin, their, their eyes light up. They warmly reciprocated his attitude toward them and the library. He's remembered as a perfect patron, one who would not make unreasonable demands. If a book couldn't be found for him at the moment, he would wait until it could be located. He is remembered for his manners, which were those of a southern gentleman. When there were others waiting, he hung back. He insisted that even young people he served be served in turn, although the librarians were always eager to show deference to a friend who was one of the great writers of his time. And we believe when you see the young people and teens milling around the library today, you can imagine Mr. Mankin being very pleased. So we are so pleased also to continue this warm relationship, and we hope we can produce another Mankin. Now, I'd like to introduce a person who, like many of you, keep Mankin's memory and legacy alive. He is the treasurer of the Board of Directors of the Mankin Society and is the senior editor of Hopkins Press. Please welcome Mr. Robert Bruger, who's here to introduce our featured lecturer. Thank you. Thank you, Carla. It's the idea of another Mankin leaves me uh, shuddering. Uh, 
we are uh, here today to uh, welcome Professor Michael Kazin of Georgetown University. He visits us from uh, the drawing rooms and seminar rooms of one of the loveliest places uh, south of Baltimore, uh, excepting Annapolis, perhaps, or including Annapolis, uh, and still north of the Potomac, Georgetown, uh, the, the village that was uh, there before the District of Columbia. Uh, it turns out that uh, in accepting this, uh, uh, this invitation to speak this afternoon, Professor Kazin uh, learned that his father, Alfred Kazin, the great literary critic and writer, delivered uh, this same lecture uh, in 1986. Uh, I'm sorry I missed it. I was in Charlottesville, actually, but it was entitled Henry Louis Mencken, H.L. Mencken, and the Great American Boob. Uh, <laughs> I wish I were here. Uh, Professor Kazin is a, a graduate of Harvard College, uh, 1972, class of 1972, went on to Portland State uh, in uh, Oregon, uh, his green period, during which he finished a master's, uh, went on to Stanford uh, University, finishing a PhD in 1983. He has taught at American University, UC Santa Cruz, and uh, other schools. His uh, honors, many honors include having been uh, selected to serve as the John Adams Chair in American Studies at the University of Utrecht in Holland. <clears throat> he has held a Fulbright uh, Fellowship in, at, uh, uh, in Japan and has been uh, a fellow uh, of the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Guggenheim Foundation, and the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington. He's published books on the building trades unions of San Francisco, Populism in 19th Century America, is working on a history of the American left, and is here today to uh, mainly to talk about his most recent published book entitled A Godly Hero, The Life of William Jennings Bryan. <clears throat> now, if any of you feel welling up inside of you a spasm of truth-seeking, I just want you to know that Professor Kazin does not lie, and you may remain quiet. Please welcome Professor Michael Kazin. Thanks, Bob, for that entertaining introduction. Um, yes, I did learn my father <clears throat> had given, well, not exactly the lecture I gave, I hope, but uh, I will give, I hope, but, but uh, a lecture. And in fact, uh, he probably referenced Brian in that lecture. I wouldn't be surprised if he did. Um, um, I uh, remember one of the uh, last things my father told me, he died 10 years ago, uh, 11 years ago now, is, is that um, he and Richard Hofstadter, the great historian, who were very close friends, uh, when they were young and working on their first books together in the New York Public Library in the late 1930s, early 1940s, used to quote Mencken to each other uh, by heart. Uh, um, it was sort of their comic relief uh, <laughs> um, at lunchtime, evidently. So. Um, this is a homecoming of sorts. Um, but I should say, you know, in advance that, that obviously um, if you write a, a empathetic biography of Brian, which I did, not a sympathetic one, but an empathetic one, trying to understand who he was, where he came from, why he was so popular among a lot of Americans at the time, though, of course, not H.L. Mencken, um, that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a sign of the Mencken Society's uh, free thinking and uh, um, fairness. Um, that uh, you invited somebody to, in a sense, speak for Brian um, here. Um, I entitled this talk um, 
uh, Brian debates make and the confrontation we missed. Um, because as you know, um, being Menkenites, um, of the millions of words Mencken wrote, among the most famous ones, surely, most uh, quoted ones, certainly, are those he wrote in his obituary of William James Bryan. Um, and this is the kind of obituary no respected American journalist today would ever write about a respected American politician. <laughs> now, this may or may not be a sign of the declension of our intellectual life. Uh, I'll leave you to uh, decide that. Uh, whenever I quote this obituary to my students, they say, he wrote that? <laughs> um, uh, just to refresh your memories, the obituary was entitled simply In Memoriam WJB. He, Brian, seemed only a poor clod like those around him, deluded by a childish theology, full of an almost pathological hatred of all learning, all human dignity, all beauty, all fine and noble things. He was a peasant come home to the barnyard. <laughs> Brian said Mencken was only ambitious, never sincere. He looked like a dog with rabies in the Tennessee courtroom during the Scopes trial. He, quote, liked people who sweated freely and were not debauched by the refinements of the toilet. <laughs> Above all, Brian revealed the rotten state of the nation's politics. Quote, he couldn't be president, but he could at least help magnificently in the solemn business of shutting off the presidency from every intelligent and self-respecting man. Now, Mencken's words were enormously influential at the time, and they continue to shape Brian's image today. From the 1920s through the 1950s, certainly, his vicious portrait struck many young American intellectuals, like my father, <laughs> as the unvarnished truth. Like Mencken, they, too, scorned sentimental piety. They trusted in science. They gloried in the culture of the metropolis. In 1948, Richard Hofstadter, whose work almost 40 years after his death remains as significant as that of any historian of the modern United States, and a generation of liberal thinkers like Hofstadter, many Jewish and the children of immigrants echoed his opinion. By the 1950s, some secular liberals also spied a close resemblance between Bryan's native-born populist throng and the grassroots conservatives of their own day, the McCarthyites, screaming for the heads of pinko professors, cursing anyone who opposed prayer and Bible reading in public schools. The authors of the 1955 play and 1960 movie, Inherit the Wind, modeled their character of Matthew Harrison Brady in all his vainglorious rigidity on Brian as Mencken had depicted him. Um, how many people, by the way, have seen uh, the movie Inherit the Wind? Uh, most of you, of course. Um, as you know, uh, the Mencken the character is played by Gene Kelly, and the Brian character is played by Frederick March, and, of course, the Darrow character is played by uh, Spencer Tracy. Um, and all of you who know uh, any film history have seen a lot of Tracy's films. You know, you never want to be the foil to Spencer Tracy. <laughs> Spencer Tracy never is the bad guy. Um, for liberal authors and scholars who came of age during the Great Depression, as my father and Hofstadter did, the true Brian would always be the one whom Clarence Darrow had exposed on the stand, on the courthouse lawn in Darrow, excuse me, in Dayton, Tennessee. Mencken's portrait has endured. In 2000, the historian Ronald Steele marveled in the New York Review of Books, that Brian, quote, who today would be considered a windbag fit only for a career as a TV evangelist, mesmerized crowds for hours with his mellifluous prose. Of course, Mencken had little respect for any politician, particularly one like Brian, who professes undying ardor for the common folk. Yet until reporting on the Scopes trial, 
Mencken had not thought Bryan any worse than the other performers, authentic or humbug, who strutted across the electoral stage. On occasion, Bryan even paid tribute to Bryan for enlivening a Democratic convention. But two weeks in Dayton changed him, that is, Mencken. It was the first time Mencken, the sophisticate from Baltimore, had witnessed the raw enthusiasm of a religious revival, had met so many people who preferred the warmth of their Bibles to the cold reason of science and the law. I had never been on close terms with country people before, Mencken told a friend. I set out laughing and returned shivering. The experience hardened his conviction that democracy was simply a way to fire the hatred of the lower orders against their mental superiors. And Brian was ringleader of the mob. Mencken's loathing was driven by fear. He predicted that Brian was quickly becoming a saint to millions of yokels outside the big cities who were intent on turning America over to the KKK and like-minded regiments of Bible-spatting youths. The specter of a theocratic state run by such idiots has haunted secular intellectuals ever since. Mencken did find one cause for cheer. Brian's noxious legacy, he wrote, might help break up the democratic delusion, now already showing weakness, and so hasten its own end. Of course, Brian never had a chance to respond to his most enduring critic. What if he had been able to debate Mencken? What might he have said? And how would Mencken have responded? For the rest of my uh, talk, I want to imagine <laughs> that debate, at least in part. It would have lasted much longer than I have time uh, to recite today. The two men disliked each other, clearly, but this debate could have been larger than just a debate about how two men you know, were antagonistic towards one another. It could have been much more than about the heat of the hostility. Um, it could have been a conflict about questions that are really important in American society, and in fact, in many societies around the world today. It could have touched on basic questions about the uses of political reform, about the virtues of religious faith, about the value of democratic government itself. Whenever possible, I'll use the words of each man. I won't always say, quote, <laughs> um, those of you who know Mencken's writing well, which is many of you, I, I suppose, will recognize which are quotes and which are Kazin's uh, making up uh, what Mencken might have said and not doing a very good job of it, probably. Um, those of you who don't know Brian's words very well, uh, which is probably most of you, um, will have to do the same thing. I should confess, as a Brian biographer, I have given him somewhat more time than I have to Mencken. Uh, he did die without being able to rebut Mencken's uh, famous obituary. Um, and I hope, since you're more familiar with Mencken's work than I am, that you will excuse me if I slight his views or am unfair to the meaning of his words. This was, after all, the brilliant craftsman of English prose, or as he would have said, probably American English prose. Um, and so, as I said, I, I, I will try to uh, paraphrase him at certain points, but uh, <clears throat> excuse me if I don't do it very well. So here we go. Brian, my dear Mr. Mencken, your own, your own kind obituary was rather shocking to read. I was aware, of course, you had no sympathy whatsoever for my views about religion or the so-called science of evolution. But when we met briefly in Dayton a few days before the trial, you led me to believe we were in agreement about the justice of the law passed by the Tennessee legislature regarding the teachings of Darwin's ideas. You wrote, Quote, when a pedagogue takes his oath of office, he renounces the right to free speech, quite as certainly as a bishop does, or a colonel in the army, or an editorial writer on a newspaper. Brian again. What is more, on at least one occasion, near the start of your illustrious journalistic career, you were quite pleased with my oratory, 
At one point, you reported on the Democratic Convention uh, in St. Louis in 1904, and you lavished generous praise on the speech I gave uh, at that convention, in which I called on my party to appeal to the conscience of the country. Uh, I completed that address. As you, of course, remember, you may dispute whether I fought a good fight. You may dispute whether I have finished my course, but you cannot deny that I have kept the faith. They brought the house down. You remember that talk with these words. Quote, his magnificent baritone voice rolled out clearly and sonorously. In two minutes, he had stilled the hostility of the crowd and was launched upon a piece of oratory of the very first chop. Certainly, I listened to, my, to it myself with my eyes wide open, my eyes a-pop, and my repertorial pencil palsied. It swept on, wave after wave of sound, like the finale of the first movement of Beethoven's Eroica. Of course, there could be no praise higher than that of Beethoven for Macon. And finally burst into such coruscations that the crowd first gasped and then screamed, what a speech, my masters, what a speech. Like all really great art, it was fundamentally simple. Mencken, Brian, it does not surprise me that you have stopped reading as soon as my words displeased you. In the very next line I wrote about your speech, the argument in it was feeble. And the paraphrase of 2 Timothy 4, uh, line 7, was obvious. What you delivered that night in Missouri was a brilliant stage performance of a typically ludicrous script. It certainly did not make you less of a charlatan, a mountebank, a, mountebank, uh, a zany without shame or dignity. I was just 24 at the time and attending my first national political convention. So perhaps I was momentarily seduced by your rhetorical wiles. But I stand by what I wrote just after you died. His whole career was devoted to raising half-wits against their betters, that he himself might shine. Brian, now Mr. Mankin, you are clearly a very intelligent man. But you seem quite ignorant of all I accomplished during my long career in public life. Was it zany to advocate a progressive income tax? or laws to protect the rights of workers to join unions and guarantee a living wage? Was it shameful to demand that railroad corporations be operated in the interest of the whole community? Or the businessmen who violated the antitrust laws be sent to jail? Was it undignified to call for the police to enforce anti-prostitution laws against male clients as well as against ladies of the night? Did I lack sincerity when I resigned as Woodrow Wilson's Secretary of State in 1915 because I feared my country was about to go to war with Imperial Germany? a nation you revered. For a man who thinks that all politics is bunk, none of this may matter. But it mattered greatly to most Americans, and in some ways it matters still. Mencken, I see, Mr. Bryan, you remain as heated up as you were during those infernal days in Tennessee. As I wrote in your obituary, I feel as if I am coming under fire. But like the yokels who once worshipped you, you failed to understand my elementary disagreement with your efforts to create a super-government to police the behavior of individuals who are simply pursuing their own profit and their own pleasure. I believe in only one thing, and that thing is human liberty. If ever a man is to achieve anything like dignity, it can happen only if superior men are given absolute freedom to think what they want to think and say what they want to say. I'm against any man in any organization which seeks to limit or deny that freedom. I believe that all government is evil and that all government must necessarily make war upon liberty, and that the democratic form is as bad as any of the other forms. So your grandiose reforms do not impress me. On the contrary, they are further proof that you were a dangerous man, whether your motives were sincere or not. Some have called me a Tory anarchist, an oxymoron that I find amusing, if not altogether accurate. But you, Brian, were a hayseed socialist who combined absolute ignorance of the truth 
with a desire for a state that will meddle incessantly in everyone's private business. Brian. Mr. Mankin, you are fond of using such terms as evil and dignity, but what standards do you rely on to decide what is good and what is noxious in public life? I, like most Americans, proudly base my beliefs on the eternal truths of Christianity. If it be true, as I believe it is, that morality is dependent upon religion, then religion is not only the most practical thing in the world, but the first essential. My own philosophy, like that of my friend Leo Tolstoy, rests upon the doctrine that man, being a child of God and a brother to all the other children of God, must devote himself to the service of his fellows. Without the golden rule, on what basis does one curb the ills of democracy you so frequently inveigh against? Men sell their votes, councilmen sell their influence, state legislators and federal representatives turn the government from its legitimate channels and make it a private, access, a private asset to business. To stop these outrages, we must appeal to the conscience, not to a democratic conscience or a Republican conscience, to an American conscience and a Christian conscience, and place this awakened conscience against the onflowing tide of corruption in the United States. Mencken. Brian, even while rotting in the grave, you cannot stop giving speeches. <laughs> Fittingly, Tolstoy befriended you only after he had ceased writing novels and had become just another dogmatic scold who prattled incessantly about the glory of Christ and the blessings of the dung heap. Your certainties about a God whose existence you can never prove and whose virtues you can never witness are opposed to all that deserves the name of civilization. Men become civilized not in proportion to their willingness to believe but in proportion to their readiness to doubt. I do not object when individuals find solace in matters of the spirit. In fact, I have gone to church myself many times, honestly seeking to experience the great inward exaltation that religious persons speak of. But your invocation of Jesus to favor every one of your causes would be simply hilarious if it were not also a cudgel to destroy free speech. After all, your great zeal for reform led you to persecute that poor young science teacher in Tennessee. Brian, prosecution, Mr. Mencken, is not persecution. And I'm surprised such a keen student of our American language does not recognize the distinction. In fact, I had no animus whatsoever toward Mr. Scopes. When I met the young man in Dayton during the trial, he reminded me that I had delivered the graduation speech at his high school just six years earlier. It was the same school in Salem, Illinois that I attended many years before. We had a good laugh about that. Now, John Scopes had volunteered to test the law passed by the Tennessee legislature. He was never in danger of going to jail or losing his job. As I commented at the end of the trial, here has been fought out a little case of little consequence as a case. But the world is interested because it raises an issue, and that issue will someday be settled right, whether it is settled on our side or the other side. That issue, Mr. Mencken, was whether public schools should substitute the wild guesses of Darwinism for the eternal verities of the Bible. The consequences of this change have been appalling. Students who learn that human beings are no different from animals, that animals survive only through a violent struggle, have no reason to care for the weak and helpless among them. They often lose faith in a God ready to give at any moment the aid that is needed. A society run by Darwinists can justify laws to sterilize the so-called feeble-minded and the poor and engage in endless wars of conquest. Why, the very biology text that Scopes used in his class described two supposedly immoral families as true parasites. It commented, if such people were lower animals, we would probably kill them off to prevent them from spreading. Darwinism is the philosophy of the violent and the brutish, 
who despise the religion of love and brotherhood. That is why I agreed to join the prosecution in Dayton. I have no argument against scientific truth. In fact, I was a member of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. But Darwinism is not based on facts. It is a way of thinking that, if unchecked, will ruin civilization. Mencken, love and brotherhood? Such prattle only proves you are as much a moron as the pious rustics who once adored you. And we can be grateful that they were never able to round up enough votes to make you president. I spent a good deal of time witnessing your followers in Tennessee, and their religion was scorched with hatred, not love. For them, Darwin was the devil with seven tails and nine horns. Scopes was the harlot of Babylon. Darrow was the Beelzebub in person. I heard one mountain preacher who appealed to God to pull the penitent back out of hell and uttered a vast, impassioned jargon of apocalyptic texts. The climax of his remarks was a shrill, inarticulate squawk like that of a man throttled. The rabble was in the saddle down there, and they had no more love for their fellow Americans who were not part of their tribe than they had for the Bolsheviks. Brian, well, one can hardly blame good Christians for being angry when their faith is not just mocked, but in danger of being replaced by the cold assumption of a philosophy dressed up as science. However, you are hardly so tolerant toward Americans who are not part of your own tribe, as you call it. You have written, for example, that the Jews have an assertive racial egoism and act only on behalf of their own special interests. At a time when they were subject to the most brutal forms of discrimination in Hitler's Germany, you asserted that every Jew is Jewish before he is a man and presses the fact home with a relentless lack of tact. As one of your biographers has written, he loathed Adolf Hitler, but no more than he loathed FDR. I, in contrast, gave many talks in synagogues and denounced Henry Ford for publishing the Protocols of the Elders of Zion while you defended Ford's right to free speech. And I tried to convince my Jewish friend, the eternal Samuel Untermeyer, to join the prosecution at the Dayton trial. I'm still sorry he didn't take me up on my offer. But Mr. Mencken, I suspect the root of all our disputes is that I believe in democracy and you do not. In the short book you published on the subject just a year after the Scopes trial, you made your contempt for popular rule quite clear. You wrote, politics under democracy consists solely of the discovery, chase, and scotching of bugaboos. Government under democracy is governed by orgy, almost by orgasm. The masses are invariably cocksure, suspicious, furious, and tyrannical. I disagree, and quite fundamentally. Like Thomas Jefferson, who, by the way, was no more a Christian than you are, I believe the common people are the source of power and authority. That, for me, is a holy cause. When you hear a good democratic speech, it's as much like a sermon that you can hardly tell the difference between them. My entire career was built on the belief that once the people are mobilized, there is nothing they cannot accomplish, from building a great city like your own Baltimore, to banning corporate campaign contributions, to providing a measure of security for the jobless and the elderly. I fear the plutocracy of wealth, I respect the aristocracy of learning, but I thank God for the democracy of the heart that makes it possible for every human being to do something to make life worth living while he lives and the world better for his existence in it. But you, Mr. Mencken, would depend on a small elite of cynics and skeptics to run the world as they prefer. That certainly sounds like hell to me. Somehow, Brian, you remain both a great mountebank and a hopeless innocent. Once you and your fellow dry mullahs prophesied that the latest democratic crusade for the 18th Amendment would, quote, empty the jails, reduce the tax rate, abolish poverty, and put an end to political corruption. Somehow, prohibition didn't quite work out that way, did it? 
Well, in this imagined debate, as it was in history, Mencken has the last word. Let me make a few comments uh, after this uh, ventriloquism um, on, the on this confrontation that never took place. First of all, despite their enormous differences, Mencken and Bryan did have one thing in common. Each of them was deeply intolerant <laughs> toward those with whom he disagreed. And the popularity among large but quite separate sections of the American public raises the perhaps inevitable question that we could talk about for a long, long time. Is tolerance always a virtue? Does the respect we now grant to nearly every opinion, except one which insults a particular racial or ethnic group, produce a culture that is unable to make distinctions between those opinions? The whatever culture, I call it. On the other hand, can a democratic society, whatever one's opinion of it, survive without such tolerance? Now, because Macon's views of Brian have dominated opinion since the 1920s, I want to underline two observations that I tried to have Brian himself make uh, in that testy dialogue. First, Brian sincerely believed his campaign against Darwinism was a continuation of the progressive political stands he had taken during the rest of his career. Brian told his fellow Presbyterians in 1923, there has not been a reform for 25 years I did not support, and I am now engaged in the biggest reform of my life. I'm trying to save the Christian church from those who are trying to destroy her faith. Brian's major foes were not agnostics like Mencken or Clarence Darrow. They were Protestant modernists, theological liberals, who increasingly thought of God as little more than a good conscience. But Brian thought of a good conscience as a gift from God, one only a knave or a fool would turn down. Never before had Brian made a religious question into a political priority, but World War I had changed that. It shredded the ideal of peaceful progress and brotherhood. It gave materialist doctrines like Darwinism and Marxism and Freudianism, the benefit of the doubt when it came to explaining why warfare intensified and inequality endured. So Brian thought it was imperative to fight back. He had to put all the other reforms he cared about uh, on the back burner. Or the possibility of constructing a moral world, one in which people asked, what would Jesus do, would be lost for good. Second, as, Brian, as Mencken implied, a revivalistic style like Brian's is impossible to extricate from democratic politics, at least in this country. This style brought Brian both great love and outsized hatred. In my book, I, I talk about how many letters Brian received from you know, ordinary Americans, uh, probably more than any other American who was not president, elected president received uh, at that time, uh, millions of letters. Theodore Dreiser, one of Mencken's uh, favorite novelist, as you know, wrote about Brian, woe, woe to the political leader who preaches a new doctrine of deliverance and who, out of tenderness of heart, offers a panacea for human ills. His truly shall be a crown of thorns. The comedian Will Rogers, who was not normally a big fan of Brian's, <laughs> uh, nevertheless wrote in his own obituary of the man, Brian was just a plain citizen, holding no office, Yet this country holds hundreds of thousands of people who feel they haven't got a soul now who will conscientiously fight for them, the plain people. While some Americans were grinning and nodding as they read In Memoriam WJB, thousands of other Americans were lining the tracks as Brian's funeral train rolled slowly up the foothills of the Alleghenies through Virginia and into the nation's capital. At most towns along the route, all work was suspended to allow laborers, clerks, and factory hands, both black and white, to visit the train. At Jefferson City, Tennessee, a male quartet stood beside the railroad car 
and sang one of Brian's favorite hymns. At a tiny village in Virginia, an entire congregation came down to the tracks to pray as the train passed by. When Brian's coffin arrived in downtown Washington, an estimated 20,000 people viewed it inside the massive New York Avenue Presbyterian Church, just three blocks from the White House. In contrast, as you know, only a few old friends came to the funeral parlor on Holland Street in 1956 to say goodbye to Mencken. But that, of course, is all that he wanted. In the end, both men, I think, could have learned something important from the other. Mencken might have benefited from a drop or two of Brian's overflowing empathy for ordinary people. At least just a drop. <laughs> um, the great writer would have been even greater if he'd explained uh, what had led most human beings throughout recorded history to believe in a divine presence, if not a supernatural being. As literary theorist Terry Eagleton, a sometime Marxist and a believing Christian, recently wrote, religion is how most people imagine a better world. To back down from this vision, Eagleton writes, would be to betray what one feels are the most precious powers and capacities of human beings. Because however hard one tries, one simply cannot shake off the primitive conviction that this is not how it is supposed to be. So to write off most of humanity as a bunch of fools is thus a delusion of its own. On the other hand, Brian could have benefited from a modest helping of, of Mencken's abundant intellectual curiosity. Once a politician evangelist made up his mind about something, the gold standard, the power of corporations, Darwinism, he never changed it. He began and ended his career as a fierce partisan who was, as was said about the Bourbons, who, who excuse me, as was said about the Bourbons, learned nothing and forgot nothing. If Brian had doubted himself more, he may have convinced more Americans to vote for and believe in him. He also may have fared better in that celebrated cross-examination by Clarence Darrow, the cross-examination which helped convince so many Americans that Mencken's malicious obituary was very close to the truth. Thank you.